0: We'll hear argument first this morning in Case Sixteen-Ninety-Four-Ninety-Three, mirales versus the United States. Ms. Davidson,
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court: the government concedes that the Fifth Circuit's "shocks the conscience" standard is the wrong approach for a court of appeals to apply under the fourth prong of plain error review. The question remains: how should a court of appeals exercise its discretion when confronted with an obvious guidelines error? That probably results in a defendant serving a longer prison sentence. We ask the court to recognize what every circuit but the fifth already has. That is, in the ordinary case, such an error seriously affects the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of the judicial proceedings and warrants correction.
0: One, one day? I mean, if you're, if the person is in uh, prison one extra day, uh, that Will cause people to look at judicial proceedings uh, as lacking fairness and integrity?
1: I believe so. Under the under the analysis of the fourth prong, certainly a sentence of an extra twenty years versus a day twenty years is worse. But under the analysis of the fourth prong, the question really is: Does the nature of the error frustrate the purposes served? by the rule at issue. And in the context of the guidelines, um, a guidelines error directly frustrates the very purposes served uh, by the sentencing guidelines scheme, Uh, the congressional goals to promote uniformity and proportionality and to avoid unwarranted disparity, to achieve parsimony, meaning that a defendant is sentenced to the least amount of time necessary to effectuate the statutory goals, and uh to have respect for the district court
0: no and these are all reasons that you would um, consider when the question is when there's an objection uh and the question is raised here we're dealing with the situation when there was no objection so we're in the uh, context of plain error so it seems to me that you have to argue more than just this was wrong and it ought to be fixed
1: Agreed. This Court has always said something more is required. But at at this point, a defendant has met his burden to show a plain error that affects substantial rights. We
2: have said uh, many times that uh, correction under the plain error doctrine should be exercised sparingly. But I take it your argument is in the context of a guidelines error. The discretion should not be exercised sparingly; it should be exercised routinely
1: well, your honour, I think the context is that fifty two b applies to the grand universe of errors, and so guideline errors remain a narrow um, type of error that can arise and Statistically speaking, in the last fiscal year, of the thousands of sentencing appeals that were raised, less than six percent got remanded because they raised a guideline calculation error. So we have the empirical evidence, um, which is cited on page 12 of the yellow reply brief, um, that in fact uh, it doesn't happen very often.
2: While your guideline, but then you errors. are saying you are saying that guidelines errors are, are exceptions to the general rule that plain error review uh, should yield corrections sparingly? You are saying that this is a category where it should be exercised routinely.
1: I think a guideline error presents a – the nature of the guideline error is such that it ordinarily will have that effect, but it won't always.
3: And and why is that? Why are guideline errors – a category in which we should kind of flip what usually happens. It goes from sparingly to most of the time.
1: As the court has recognized in Pew and Molina Martinez, um, the uh, sentencing guidelines provide the essential framework for federal sentencing, and there is a well-documented anchoring effect so that when there is an erroneously high guidelines range, um, there's a significant risk that the defendant was sentenced to a longer prison time than he otherwise would have had the district court not been influenced
3: by the error. Itself. That seems more a prong 3 question, isn't it? The question, you know that that most uh guideline calculation errors are going to uh, have an effect on the on on, on the sentence. But then there is also prong 4. Why shouldn't that do something different?
1: Uh it's our position that Pron 3 and Pron 4 do have distinct inquiries, but because there's such a direct nexus between the sentencing guideline error and the effect, um, the separate inquiries will also will often be examining the same or similar type of information on the record before it. And uh, while um, it is true that Molina Martinez looks at uh, the anchoring effect of the guideline to show that the guideline error itself can be evidence of an effect on substantial rights um, the resulting harm of that is a longer prison sentence and um, an excess amount of prison is a serious harm that run uh, that has consequences both for society and the administration of justice
4: I mean if we said that um, an error is plain if it creates a risk that the defendant will serve a longer sentence than the defendant would have otherwise served. I don't know what's left of the plain error rule in criminal cases. You, you seem to be equi- you seem to. your argument seems to be that an error is plain unless it's harmless, unless it is not harmless. Isn't that right?
1: No. Um, and there's actually quite a lot left of the plain error analysis.
4: Well, what is left of it in this context? I mean, you cite three examples — in your brief, uh, one is when the defendant has waived, uh, an objection to the guideline, to the sentence in, a, in a plea agreement. The other is when the defendant has already completed the sentence, in which case I think the case would be, would be moot. There would be no, uh, uh opportunity to get relief and a direct appeal. And the other is when the, descend- the defendant is serving a concurrently running sentence. Do you have others?
1: Yes. We, pay, um, we cite the Tyson case on page 8 in the yellow brief, and that's a, a good example of where we have um, two different inquiries that are informed by the same sort of information, uh, the effect of the guideline. Um, in that case, the uh, Court of Appeals Uh, assumed that the third prong was met, but denied relief under the fourth prong because it found that um, the ultimate purposes of sentence were not frustrated by the guideline error because the guideline error didn't serve the basis for the sentence in the first place.
4: Okay. So if there's any chance that the guideline error affected the sentence, then the error is plain. That's your argument.
1: Um, Well, Yes, it would rise to a level of seriousness to warrant correction.
4: Okay. Now, if we were to apply that in other contexts, what would be left of the plain error rule in criminal cases?
1: Well, every error is different. And um, uh, a factor for a Court of Appeals to consider under the fourth prong is the nature of the error. And I think that can be broken down into two factors. First, for the Court to look at what purposes are served by the rule in question, and then to um, examine uh, the record to see if it demonstrates that those purposes are actually frustrated by the error, so um, I think that 's a type of inquiry that 's at least implicit in cotton and Johnson, and cases like that errors like that would certainly um, uh,
4: okay error and evidence is erroneously admitted at trial. Uh, it's here. It's hearsay, and it's uh, it's inadmissible hearsay. It's admitted, uh, so there's an error. Uh, but the reviewing court says that uh, uh, the the uh, harmless error standard for non-constitutional errors is met. But there is a chance that it had an effect on this uh, on conviction. So why wouldn't that be a plain error?
1: Well it likely could be a plain i i mean no it it the um let me back up uh the the evidentiary standard that has to be met under the third prong of the plain error is a is a low evidentiary standard a reasonable probability that's less than preponderance of the evidence so it's entirely possible that a court could um look at the record and see that the third prong was met but then looking at the record in total Find overwhelming and essentially uncontroverted evidence that um, the outcome was right, notwithstanding the error
4: but're changing the sta- you 're changing the harmless error standard when you say that aren 't you uh,
1: harmless uh, Excuse me, are we talking about harmless error standard or the plain well, error Well, my standard? inquiry
4: is, what is the difference between the plain error rule and the harmless error rule, as you <laughs> understand them? And you just told me, as I — what I think you just told me was that the Court would have to say it's uncontroverted, that this had no
1: effect. Otherwise,
4: it would be plain error.
1: If I understand the question correctly as distinguishing between harmless error and plain error, the the, one of the primary differences is that the burden remains on the defendant the entire time during the plain error analysis. The burden never shifts like it does under a harmless error standard.
4: Yeah, well, that ought to cut in the opposite direction, shouldn't it?
1: Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question.
4: The defendant has the, the burden under plain error, right? So it should be harder there. I still don't. I just don't understand what is left of the plain error rule. There doesn't seem to be very much left. If the only question is, is there any chance that it caused the defendant to serve uh, a a longer sentence than the defendant would have otherwise served?
1: I think the approach that's applied by the majority of circuits actually gives vitality to the um, plain error standard, as the court expressed it in Alano, and it turns on the seriousness of the error. So it's going to be. Contextualized by the error and its effect on
2: I thought you had just said that the um, guidelines miscalculation is an exception to the normal way that plain error operates. Uh, you, you have agreed with me that in um, guidelines miscalculations the error should be corrected routinely, not sparingly, I thought you were cordoning off guidelines miscalculations from all other errors.
1: Uh, no. Let me clarify. Uh, the majority approach that circuits apply don't change uh, the formula that is in place under the plain error standard. It still remains that the defendant prove all four prongs. What is different about a guidelines error is the nature of that error. There's a particularly close nexus between the error and the outcome and how that outcome frustrates the purposes served by the Sentencing Guidelines Scheme.
5: Well, then your answer to Justice Ginsburg should be yes, and it should have been yes at the outset. You said sentencing is different. We have separate rules for sentencing, in part because the costs Of remand are much less than the cost of a new trial. Uh, There can be some complexities, Um, and it it seems to me that you just have to confront the consequences of that choice. To say that in the sentencing case, an ordinary error is very close to plain error, but you seem to
4: resist that.
1: No, I. Uh, let me clarify. I think that's the correct formulation, Justice Kennedy.
4: Well, if that's the correct formulation, then why? Why is the sentencing guidelines error uh, more serious than any other type of error? More serious than a constitutional error. More serious than uh, a violation of a statutory command. Here we're not even talking about something that's mandatory. These guidelines exist in some kind of uh, uh, middle universe that I, I don't understand, but uh, that's another that's another question. Why, why, why is this different?
1: Well, the analysis doesn't turn on whether or not it's a constitutional or non-constitutional error or that the sentencing guidelines are mandatory versus advisory. It's looking at um, how close of a nexus exists between the error and how it affects the outcome. And because the sentencing guidelines are the starting point for every sentence, and are in the real basis um, the uh, what a sentence becomes anchored to, we have empirical data which reflects their anchoring effect, that when there's an erroneously high guideline range, um, there's a serious risk that a significant risk that um, the defendant's sentence was uh, also higher than it would have been had the district court not been improperly influenced by it.
0: I, I think the basis for your uh – perhaps a basis for your exception, is that the error is so um, uh, precise. Uh, you know, a typographical error has caused the person to stay in jail for — to have to stay in jail for another six months. A typographical error in exactly six months. Um, uh, so I think — one of the considerations we take into account is the reputation for the judicial system, justice system. And if you tell somebody, well, because of a typo, the guy's going to stay in jail for six more months, people will say, well, that's not, that's not fair. On the other hand, I don't think that takes into account there is – cost associated with that, which is the, the, the remedy is you send it back for another sentencing hearing, who knows how long, uh, 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 how much time has passed, the judge has to reconstruct the whole uh, operation, and uh, that's caused by your client's failure to object when he should have objected. So uh, why doesn't it make sense to say that it kind of makes a difference if you're talking about a relatively insignificant amount of time? I, any day in jail is not insignificant, but there's a difference between an error that results in an additional six months and an error that results in an additional five years. Is that something that the Court can consider, or is it — I guess it's the first question I ask. Is your position one day and it's plain error?
1: I don't think uh, the amount of excess is the, is the right marker for a Court of Appeals to determine. Um, because it would run contrary to the congressional goal of parsimony. And as the court stated in Williams, it's the uh, district court's prerogative to determine the appropriateness of a particular sentence to begin with. Um, As to relative cost, um, certainly there's always some cost involved to resentencing, but the fact is it is a lower cost than um, having a, a, a new trial, for example, Uh, the Court recognized that um, resentencing doesn't present the same amount of costs in Molina Martinez.
6: Mrs. Mrs. Davison, Ms. Davison, I think of the three prongs, the third and the fourth prong. The third prong as being um, fairness of process. Were you given the process that you were entitled to constitutionally or statutorily? And so on the third prong, We've had many cases where elements were not given to a jury. This is neater case. Um, we've had cotton where a drug amount wasn't given to a jury. We look at that third prong as a substantial deprivation of some form of constitutional or state right. I think of the fourth prong. As fairness of the ultimate outcome, which is very different because often, like in cotton, where an element like drug amount wasn't given to a jury, we look at the quantum of evidence and say, would the outcome have been different? Mm-hmm. And that's most of our cases. Was the area of error so substantial that the outcome was actually unfair? And so for me, that fourth prong does serve, even in sentencing guidelines, a different function. It talks, our third prong finding is that the fairness of a judge, just process of considering your sentence from a correct kind line was frustrated. The third, fourth prong goes to, is there a substantial possibility that the outcome was affected? That you would have received a lesser sentence is there an error in the way i'm looking at this
1: no i don't believe so um and in cotton um, it's not just what the court examined of uh, what the outcome would have been but but based on what that record demonstrated and i think that analysis would apply in this case um, because we don't have a record that demonstrates what a district court would have done by overwhelming and uncontroverted evidence, especially when it's not just a mathematical error of the guideline, but it's premised on a factual error in the criminal history.
6: Well, I think your, your point in your brief was he got at the low end of the guideline 78 months. Despite all of the negative factors that the government points to in its brief, his serious criminal history, et cetera, et cetera, the judge still sentenced him at the low end of the guideline. And so that demonstrates that it is possible, not just substantially possible, but that the judge will, in fairness and upholding the integrity of the judiciary, give him a lesser sentence, correct? Yes. It's a possi- a strong possibility. Yes.
7: M- Ms. Davidson, I was wondering about um our, our standard in the lotto in the fourth prong, talking about fairness, reputation, integrity, judicial proceedings, where it came from. Um, <clears throat> and I, I traced it back to Atkinson, 1936 opinion. I know you've cited that. And I, I wondered your thoughts about that. Because in Atkinson, uh, it said district courts should be guided by uh, the following test in when to exercise their discretion to correct a plain error. And it suggested that they should correct a plain error whenever it's obvious or when it affects the fairness, integrity, uh, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. And Olano turned that or into an and. What do we make of that?
1: Well, I'm aware of that uh, history, um, but I also can't ignore how uh, often cited the Court has restated Olano's formulation um, so I don't have a position in, in going back to a pure disjunctive. Um, but I would like to point out that uh in articulating that what became the fourth prong standard in Atkinson, Atkinson cites Brassfield. And in Brassfield um, it's an example where the court recognized a type of error that uh um, by virtue of inquiring into a, a the numerical division among the jurors, uh, that inquiry itself uh, impugned the system. And so I think there is recognition that, that different errors have a different degree of seriousness uh, and have a different <coughs> level of effect
3: compared
7: to — Well, if that's true, on the fourth prong, public rec- reputation, let's say, um, how are we supposed to determine that normatively, right? Or is it an empirical matter? We're supposed to take a poll. I, I think if we took a poll, we'd find that a lot of people may not care — about how long your client spends in prison. Right? Whether it's an extra six months or not. Should that matter? Should a, a, a public reputation in, a, in, a, in an institution that's designed to check majoritarian impulses, like the judiciary is supposed to? Should, should those majoritarian influences even matter in our consideration of the fourth prong?
1: Well, I think it's diffil- difficult because there's not going to be that type of evidence. On a record of what the public thinks. But I think um, the formulation of the fourth prawn, public reputation of the judicial proceedings, is, is less of an examiner. It's not public reputation of the defendant. It's of the judicial proceedings. And so I do think that uh, um,
7: so, so it's a normative inquiry rather than an empirical one, I think is what you're suggesting. In which case, should, should uh, the fact that a, a person spends a day in prison longer than the law permits be something we should care about.
1: Yes, especially when it results from an obvious and easily correctable error
7: that we've made ourselves.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve my Thank time you, for counsel. rebuttal.
8: Mr. Ellis? Mr. Chief Justice, it may it please the Court. The plain error rule is designed to capture a narrow set of errors that we as a society are not willing to subject to the ordinary rules of party presentation and forfeiture that govern federal proceedings. The question here is whether clear guidelines errors, errors as a class will almost always meet that test. We think the answer is no and the petitioner's argument to the contrary, ignores fundamental aspects of the federal sentencing regime, is inconsistent with the federal rules and this Court's precedent.
2: Isn't it so that most circuits, if not all, that have addressed the question do take the position uh, that guidelines miscalculations, if they're clear, call for? Um, correction on plain error review.
8: So I think Petitioner overstates the consensus in the lower courts. Only two courts of appeals ten, are adopted. Did the
2: Tenth Circuit? I'm sorry? Did the Tenth Circuit in, what is it, Sabalone humana overstate it when the Tenth Circuit said that the third and fourth prongs of plain error test align in these Guidelines so I
8: So I think what the Tenth Circuit said is that uh, courts of appeals often exercise authority, uh, their authority under the fourth prong when the first three are met, and that some have adopted a presumption. That's correct. Two courts of appeals have adopted presumptions, but even those courts have recognized that that presumption may be rebutted in case, based on the factors that we've identified in our brief as grounds uh, not to exercise uh, the, the Court of Appeals authority. And, in fact, the Third Circuit, one of those two circuits, since Molina Martinez has announced I was made clear that the fourth prong should be applied on a case-specific basis and that even in a case where the first three prongs are met, even in a guidelines case where the first three prongs are met, it imposes a considerable barrier to relief.
3: Mr. Riles, can can I just, um, Justice Gorsuch, when he was a judge, wrote this opinion, which I'm sure you've read many times, and I I just want to quote one sentence from it and then ask you what you think about it, because he basically you know, suggests why you maybe lose. <laughs> but this is what he said. He might not agree with this anymore. Who knows? But he says, uh, what reasonable citizen wouldn't bear a rightly diminished view of the judicial process and its integrity if courts refuse to correct obvious errors of their own devise that threaten to require individuals to linger longer in federal prison than the law demands? Especially when the cost of correction is so small. And I take that to be combining three things. First, you have a deprivation of liberty. Second, you have a, uh, an error, as he says, of your own devise. In other words, the court has something to do with it. The, proda- the probation officer has messed up and then the court hasn't uh, caught the error. And, uh, and third, that the cost of correction is small, certainly relatively smaller. And you package those three things together, and you get a, you know, a rule that treats these kinds of errors differently, that does mean that they're uh, uh, routinely as opposed to sparingly corrected. Sure. Sure. Why isn't that right? So there's a
8: lot packed into that. Um, so I, I think just sort of starting with the man on the street and what, what the view of the judiciary I think if you went on to explain that that ours is a system of party presentation that's been designed so that the the parties have an opportunity to raise heirs and they're expected to do so, that any complicated system like a system of justice has to have rules and those rules have to have meaning, that I think it's – I I don't know that they would conclude or look less upon the judiciary if uh, in in an ordinary – I'm sorry, no, please.
3: I mean, Doing a much he can better probably better job do it tonight. better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, uh, this is saying is, uh, yes, the reasonable citizen, assuming this great reasonable citizen exists, you know, would think all of those things, but he would say, here's this particular kind of error. And, and, uh, it's rare that all of these three things come together. Deprivation of liberties, that's pretty common. Um but, uh, uh low costs, that's not so common. And the fact that the error is of the Court's own making, that's really uncommon. And you put all those three things together, there's just one result that's screaming out at you.
8: So, so you're, you're exactly right that the deprivation of liberty uh, is not so uncommon. I mean, this is the rule of criminal procedure. So any time that this rule comes into play, uh, a deprivation of liberty is at stake. So then we're talking about the cost. And we think the cost might come in in two different ways. One way might be in setting the standard. Uh, as for when you might apply plain air, but we think the court did that in Olano, that it was correct. That standard was ratified in the 2002 amendments to the federal rules, indeed where it conformed to Olano, and that this court has, it doesn't have the authority to change that standard outside of the Rules Enabling Act and the procedures identified there. And then you move on to the whether the court uh, was one of the courts own making, and I just don't think that's quite right. The probation office is of course a part of the court, but the responsibility for raising errors is still lies with the defendant. And the defendant has ample opportunity in most cases and indeed in this case to review the PSR and, and bring to the court's attention any errors. And the error in this case was one, and in many cases will be one, in which the defendant is uniquely competent to identify and bring to the court's attention. So you put all that together and you do not think it would, it would it be
2: ineffective assistance of counsel for counsel not to notice a glaring error in calculating the guidelines,
8: I think it's there are some there may be some cases perhaps we don't think uh that and there's been any claim in this case we don't think every failure to spot uh, an obvious error in the in the PSR would uh, amount to deficient performance, or or necessarily uh, amount to prejudice under this under Strickland, and we think this case is about the the category of errors that don't amount to to ineffective assistance of counsel, and what the court sh- the court of appeals should do when they're raised for the first time on appeal.
5: I still am not sure when I when I leave here and write <clears throat> write down what your position is. What is your definition of the fourth prong as it applies to this case?
8: sure so our definition is is what the, is the courts definition unfortunately this is a not an area much like sentencing itself that lends itself what to the right your, line what rules. is your
5: best guidance as to how to apply it in this case using neutral principles
8: so general I mean, principles yeah sure so i, I think the test is the one from Alano: whether the error is one that seriously affects the fairness and integrity yes. of judicial proceedings. I think the nature of the guideline of the error here should inform that analysis. The petitioner has argued that we deny that it's relevant. But that's not true. We don't think it's grounds to create an exception uh, to the rule, and we don't think it's grounds to, to change that standard. But we do think it's highly relevant to how so it applies. Well, I'm right I'm waiting to write sure. something down. <laughs> we think that in, the, in a guidelines case. Uh, in the ordinary guidelines case, where where the sentence that was imposed is one that is lawful and one that is uh, that would be reasonable even if the guy- error had been brought to the attention of the court and and corrected it 's going to be an unlikely ca- an, 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 an unusual case where the, that is the type of error that seriously affects the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial receivers there
0: may be there may be a case where it does, right? I mean, we're talking about whatever the of time is here. But let's say the guideline says you should get somewhere between 2 and 5 and, in fact, or, be, be, between 8 and 10. Uh, and, in fact, the right guideline was 2 and 5. Would that be a situation where you said the balance worked out so that
8: it would be plain error? I think it's hard to give a, a, a concrete answer uh, based on narrow facts like that. We do think that it is a much more often uh, more often will be met in cases where the sentence doesn't fall within the correct range. Uh, and, and we do think, as you noted uh, before, that the magnitude of the error is, is relevant to the analysis. Uh, we also think uh, that what's relevant is that the Court could have, um, even if we couldn't say would have, departed from the, the, the range that it's calculated up to the range right. that was the so correct
9: one. Is that, is that, because I, I have, a, I'm, I'm drawing on what the Chief Justice said now and before, in my mind. Uh, and the question, in my mind, is should we proceed by category? Uh, and people have been focusing, which I agree with, uh, about the, uh, what Justice Kagan said in the drawing on what was written by Justice Gorsuch, uh, what people would think of this. But I'm not thinking of what people would think of this. I'm thinking of what the guidelines are about. And we have, one, there was an error. Two, it's clear and obvious. Three, it did affect the party's rights. He went to jail at least one day more. Okay? So we got those three things. And given those three things, it's probably an arithmetical error. Probably, but not definitely. And then we ask for, uh, did the error affect, now there are three things here. Fairness. And the second one is what I'd focus on. I'm not focusing on fairness. I'm not focusing on public reputation of judicial proceedings. I am focusing on the integrity of the judicial proceeding. And the reason I'm focusing on it is because the guidelines have a special purpose, and they have a special procedure. The special purpose is to create a kind of uniformity among people who do the same thing in respect to their punishment. And the special procedure is that the Commission and the courts cooperate in gathering statistical information so that the Commission can see how that's working. Now, as soon as you have people who depart for incorrect reasons from what they're supposed to put, you muck up that statistical information. And although you could say with just one or two it doesn't matter, there is no way to distinguish between one or two and 51 or 52, and maybe one across the country, but maybe one in a single district, does matter. And so all those kinds of technical mistakes that do affect the party, that are clear, do interfere significantly with the congressionally legislated purpose of the guidelines and the effort to implement them. Therefore, considered as a class, Because of the difficulty of distinguishing among them, we don't want to go case by case. Distinguishing is a class where one, two, and three are met. So is four. To the least, there is a presumption to that effect. All right. That's how I would look at it. And what's the answer to that?
8: So a couple responses to that. Justice Breyer. Number one, in Pepper, this Court recognized that the sort of disparity that Congress is, was worried about in the guidelines context is not the sort of disparity that's caused by the ordinary rules of appellate procedure. And so we don't think there's any indication here that the kind of disparity that the Congress was, was concerned about is the type that, that flows from the ordinary application of the plain error rule. As for uh, the nature of of the guidelines and how they work, we actually think that cuts the other way. As I say, we do think it's relevant. But the difference in a sentencing case is that, unlike in a trial, the outcome isn't binary. So when you're talking about an error that meets the first three prongs, you're not talking about an error that creates a reasonable probability of of a different outcome in the trial that is a conviction or acquittal. You're talking about an error that creates a reasonable probability of some movement in the sentence. But a defendant in the federal system isn't entitled, in most cases, to one particular sentence after a duly, duly been, been duly convicted. Rather, they're entitled to one of a range of lawful sentences. And the sentencing commission has established a framework in which uh, there is, for any given defendant with a given criminal history and a given offense conduct, there is actually a range of reasonable sentences within that lawful one. And so when you're talking about an error that m- may have created a reasonable probability of moving within that range, But the sentence that was imposed still falls within the right range. Correct.
9: But if you will read, as I hope you would someday, the introduction to the initial version of the guidelines, which happens still to be there, you will see that the purpose of the Commission is first to create a set of guidelines and then through the procedures I'm talking about to see what judges actually do in administering the guidelines so that those can be improved and uh, changed over time. Now, if we are looking at not what the judge did under the guideline, but what the judge thinks he did under the guideline, but he got the guideline all wrong, then we can't do We can't carry that out. As I say, we might be able to live with one mistake in one district, but then we have to distinguish which ones, and there's no way to do that. So you might end up with 50. the same point I'm making before. So I'm saying what the integrity is that is interfered with is the integrity of the congressionally mandated purpose and method through which the guidelines are to be implemented.
8: I don't think there's a record for to to conclude that the that the ordinary application of the plain error rule is going to so muck up the system as you say. And if there were, I think that would be maybe perhaps grounds for there to, for someone to consider a change. Well, Mr. Ellis, uh, if, if
7: along those lines, though, uh, Congress did speak to this question, um, uh, the feedback loop problem that Justice Breyer has been alluding to in 3742. F1, where it said if there's an error in calculating the sentencing guideline, uh, the, the case shall be remanded. Yeah, true. Uh, not, not may. I, I take it you'd have us read shall to mean may.
8: Uh, so I think that, that provision, 3742F1, was written to, to deal with preserved errors in a mandatory system.
7: So, well, you haven't, you haven't, um, suggested that the statute's ineffectual, um, have you? You'd have us just ignore the statute then?
8: So I think, I think those are your choices, right? We either
7: ignore the statute or we read shall to mean may. have I, you I got a
8: third option? Led, I, I think there is. Okay. One, what's what's I think, the and, third and put, option? So the third option is to read that to discuss, uh, to to refer to preserved errors, and to incorporate the established rules. That's what the Court said in Williams, that that, that, that may still uh, is subject to the harmless error rule. We see no reason why it wouldn't be subject to the plain error rule.
4: Well, that shall is part of the mandatory regime. I thought that was declared unconstitutional. In Booker.
8: So that's the first option that he gave me, and I think that's still open to the court. Yeah. Uh, in, in footnote seven of Green Law, this court specifically flagged that the discussion there is not meant to settle the question as to whether thirty-seven. I mean, 40 suppose a district judge
4: said, "All right, you know, um, there's a dispute about which what the guidelines range is, and one of the guidelines that's possible here has a range that includes the sentence of sixty months, and I have considered." The statutory factors that I am supposed to consider in identifying a just and appropriate sentence, and I think 60 months hits it right on the the head, and that's the sentence that I'm going to uh, impose. And I would impose that sentence no matter what the guidelines said. Would there be a problem there?
8: There would not. That would not, I think would not meet the third prong of plain error. I'd, I'd say that's not so far off from what happened here uh so the, the there we talked about the factors in our but, brief. but
4: that would be you know, if if the, if shall is taken literally the, that there would still that that would still be subject to reversal wouldn't it
8: uh, i think that's right i think the court dealt with that in williams uh when it said that the, the shall still is subject to the harmless error rule and i think in that case it certainly would be harmless uh, it may be worth going through why we think this particular error is not one that seriously affects the fairness and integrity uh so we've number out, laid out a number of factors in our brief from pages 36 to 39, but we think maybe three are the most important here.
7: And the first is that — Before we leave that, I'd just like to nail this down, because the harmless error rule makes sense to me in Williamson, in light light of the language, Um, because the Court has to determine that the sentence was imposed as a result of an incorrect application of the sentencing guideline. And if it's harmless, it wasn't imposed as a result of. But how do you you get plain error into this rule? Uh, how, how do you get un, you know, that, that problem solved sure, so. without turning shall into may so. or ignoring the statute altogether?
8: Uh, so I think you, you, you get it by, by recognizing that that provision was passed other than the backdrop of plain air. That it was talking about preserved errors, and that there's no reason to think that the Congress meant to overturn it there. And you get it by saying that by recognizing that, that provision was enacted as part of the mandatory guideline system, that what it was doing is implementing 3742e, which this court said was unconstitutional in Booker, and therefore struck it. And so I think there's a decent, a very good argument that in fact with it goes the, the subsequent provision that says when you violate a provision, an unconstitutional provision in 3742e, here's what you do. And so in this case, as I say, there are three principal reasons why we think this there does not seriously affect the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. Number one, the sentence that was imposed fell within the corrected range. So we know from that that in the sentencing commission's expert judgment, this is a reasonable sentence for a defendant with petitioner's criminal history and offense conduct. Uh, for a typical defendant in that position. Number two, the district court imposed a sentence within the range it thought was appropriate, and so we know from that or can infer that the district court concluded that the petitioner was in fact a fairly typical defendant with this criminal history and offense. Wait,
9: let me do just a second, just in case you know this. I mean, I should know it, but I wrote it. I probably I don't too. necessarily. Did we declare this this section unconstitutional in Booker? I mean, we tried to save as much as we could, and I don't know why we wouldn't have saved this one.
8: Uh, no, um, the, the court didn't. Uh, there was a, there was a dispute about whether F would go down with E. Uh, it was subsequently, Justice Scalia subsequently wrote about it in a concurrence in Rita, and then the court wrote about it in footnote 7 of the majority of... My goodness, very good. (laughs)
9: That's very good. Uh, And so what, so we kept it or we didn't?
8: It's an open question.
9: It's an open question. Okay. Thank you.
8: We don't think it needs to be resolved in this case because we do think it's talking about preserved errors, and the plain error rule would apply. Number three, the number three reasons the district court imposed uh not just a sentence pegged to the bottom or top of what they thought was the correct range, but somewhere in the middle. Well, pretty, pretty low. No. Uh,
3: you know, just over the bottom. But I it, I think it, it, it seems to me all these, one, two, and three, run smack into Melina Martinez, which you know, basically rejected all of these arguments and said it doesn't matter if your sentence ends up in the middle um, because the ang- the range does something. It anchors people's sentencing determinations, and it anchors them sufficiently so that even if you could have reached that sentence regardless of the range being wrong, we think the error in the range matters and is likely to matter in the great majority of cases. And you're suggesting that we ignore everything we said about that now.
8: Not at all, Your Honor. Uh, I think the Court was dealing very clearly with a third prong in Melina Martinez. And the question under that third prong, as we see it, is whether it creates, and as the Court said, uh, a reasonable probability of a different outcome. That's a predictive judgment that can be based on empirics. And the Court reasonably did so in Melina Martinez. And it doesn't matter for that as to whether the change was a day or 10 years. It just doesn't. The question is whether there's a reasonable probability of a different outcome, and there is. The question under the fourth prong is whether that's the sort of error that's so egregious we won't submit it to the ordinary rules of party presentation and forfeiture. And that's a broader inquiry, we think, and one in which it matters that it's a day or ten years, and one in which it matters that this is the sort of error that the defendant had every opportunity to raise and, in fact, was uniquely competent to raise. And it matters that the district court, even if we can't say definitely would have, although there's some indication that it might, that he could have. And that sentence would have been reviewed very definitely on appeal, and it would have been a reasonable one. All those things Way well, in.
6: When you're talking about reasonableness, it seems like you're doing substantive reasonableness, which is what the Fifth Circuit was doing with its standard. It borrowed a substantive um, due process right or standard, shocked the conscience, and applied it to this sentence. And it sounds like, with all your three reasons and your argument, which is the only thing that matters is that. It does, that this is a reasonable sentence, no matter if it's not the sentence the district court would have given. That's basically your argument, isn't it? Uh,
8: we think that matters.
6: Alright. But why? When the three prongs of the fourth, the three arms of the fourth prong say fairness, integrity, or, um, I've forgotten the fourth, but it's- Public reputation. Public reputation. Or is disjunctive, not conjunctive. That's right. So why isn't it unfair?
8: We think it's not unfair. If that's a procedural right.
6: That's not a substantive right.
8: So a couple of responses to that, Your Honor. We, we think it's not unfair because the contemporaneous objection rule is the ordinary rule, and we think in the ordinary case that applying that rule and the consequences of that rule is fair. We think it's, it's reasonable to look at the substantive result.
6: That's not what this fourth prong says. What this fourth prong appears to say is the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of our judicial system. What's fair about an error that the judge in part was a part of that could be easily corrected and that might very well result in a lower sentence? To a defendant, what's fair about not correcting
8: that error? I think what's fair is that I think it's, a system has to have rules, and those rules have to have consequences. And I, I think that, uh, that that people would understand that. And then, the ordinary case that it does just the fact that the defendant didn't raise his area in a timely manner is sufficient reason to say that we're not going to correct it on appeal. You you noted the cost, and that's come up several times in in this colloquy in our our discussion. And I I think that the cost may be a reason to change the standard, but we don't think it's it's a a reason to uh, the court should uh, should consider in applying the standard. We don't think, for example, that two otherwise identical trial errors uh, should be subjected to a different standard because one came from a two-day trial and the other a two-month trial and, therefore, would be more expensive to correct.
3: Well, and- but there again, Molina Martinez is against you, right? Because in that case, we talked about the fact that a remand for resentencing, I'm quoting now, while not costless, does not involve the same difficulties as a remand for retrial. And we talked about uh, the government had this concern over judicial resources, and we specifically rejected that. And we said, uh, uh, you, you know, that the, the resources are not sufficient for us to take that seriously here. So the,
8: the, what the Court said is that, that it's not the same as a retrial. What the Court also said is that it doesn't really matter because it's not relevant to the standard under the third prong. And we agree it's the same under the fourth prong, that the costs of re aren't relevant to the application of whether the error itself is one that significantly affects the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial proceedings.
7: If we're going to compare the, the cost empirically um, of the two systems, wouldn't we have to account for the fact that Under the regime you propose there are a lot more appeals that the courts of appeals have to resolve. In the circuits where this rule exists or this presumption exists, the government frequently confesses error to mathematical mistakes in the guidelines applications, and it automatically goes back for resentencing without the need of of appellate resources being involved. Should that be a cost that we should consider, or, or is that one you would have us ignore?
8: So, so, to be clear, it's my position that cost is not relevant to applying the standard.
7: It, it might be the fourth prong as well. It's, it's irrelevant there, too. Uh,
8: yes. And I also think that it's not clear empirically that that would be true. I think the, the point of the plain air rule and the narrowness, the reason it's strictly circumscribed, is to uh, maintain the incentives in the first instance to raise those errors. So you never get to the point where someone's, Filing an appeal about an error they didn't raise—that's
7: just an argument against the plain error rule altogether, isn't it?
8: No, I I don't think it is. It's an error for for keeping the plain error rule to be a narrow one, to be strictly circumscribed, to maintain the balance between Rule 51 and Rule 52, and maintain the incentives. That's what the court has always said about what what it's concerned about in applying uh, the plain error rule. Are there some
5: courts—and I I don't mean to be facetious, because I think I remember uh, that—are there some courts of appeals? Just write the district judge a letter and say, would it make a difference?
8: So there is this limited remand uh, procedure that the the court identified. Limited remand, yes. So the court identified that in in Melina Martinez as a way to mitigate the cost. It's really about the third prong, because the third prong is, uh, is there a reasonable probability of a different sentence? And so you can answer that. Ask the judge. But if the judge says yes, there's still the fourth prong and there's still the full resentencing that follows. post Martinez, we haven't found any examples of courts utilizing that for a guidelines range error. In fact, the Seventh Circuit has said that's not about guideline range errors. That's about uh, the Booker errors and whether they treated the guidelines advisory or mandatory. If there are no further questions, we'd ask the court to affirm the judgment below. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Davidson, seven minutes.
1: I'd like to start with what Justice Breyer said about the guidelines as being a specialized body of guidance that has specialized proceedings, and uh, we can't ignore the context and the essential framework that the guidelines and the court's um, decisions regarding how those guidelines function, just because we're under the Fourth Prong, and so um, we disagree that the that the factors that the government considers um, are even appropriate because they're directly at odds with the clear guidance the Court has um, provided. Um, I also want to address the discussion about 3742. Um, I agree that um, whether or not it's still viable doesn't have to be decided today. But I do think it provides clear congressional judgment that at the point at which substantive rights are affected, Um, it, it's at least Congress's intention that the error is serious enough that it warrants remand. In conclusion, prongs one, two, and three have been met. The Fifth Circuit applied the wrong legal standard under the Fourth Prong. The government presents factors that are appropriate for a district court to consider. And that's why we ask this Court to reverse the judgment and remand with instructions that the sentence be vacated and that the case be remanded uh, to the district court for resentencing.
4: Would you draw a distinction between guidelines errors and other sentencing errors? Yes. And what would be the ground for that?
1: Um, it would depend on uh, the direct effect uh, the particular sentencing error would have on the outcome and whether or not the error frustrated the purposes served by the rule in question. And that can be different than um, how the guidelines function.
4: Well, suppose there was a question about whether uh, a defendant was properly treated as a recidivist.
1: That would If I understand the question correctly, it would be um, a district court's evaluation of the conduct as a, as opposed to the guideline. Um, if it's purely conduct,
4: now, I'm talking okay. about a non-guidelines issue, a statutory issue where there's a, a heavier sentence imposed based on prior criminal conduct.
1: If it were erroneous, and that's what the dem- if it, if it were erroneous. And the, district, and the record demonstrated that the district court was influenced in, in choosing its sentence because of that error, then I think that it would um, reflect an error that improperly influences the discretion of the district court and could uh, be serious enough to meet all four prongs. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.